Welcome to episode 22 of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're talking to Chris Nassel from IBM and for the purposes of this podcast, scifiinterfaces.com. This is sort of part two of our AI in culture two-parters. Last time we were with Tim Taylor talking about AI in culture pre-1950s. And this month we talked to Chris about everything AI in movies. We talk of all sorts of films, including Psychopaths, Person of Interest, Rick and Morty, Episodes, Buck Rogers, 2001, Moon, iRobot, Animatrix, Her, Futurama, all sorts of other things that I can't mention here in such a short amount of time. If you enjoy this podcast and have any questions, please get in contact or consider supporting the podcast at machine-ethics.net or patreon.com forward slash machineethics. If you'd like to contact me about talks and consultancy, go over to ethicalby.design. A quick little shout out and a thank you to all my listeners who are currently washing up right now. Thanks again for listening and hope you enjoy. Uh, hi, Chris. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hello. If you could just quickly um, let us know who you are and what you're up to. Sure. Um, so my name is Chris Nossel and uh, my day job is I one of the, I'm one of the senior design leads for Watson Customer Engagement. Um, so working with the Watson AI at IBM and um, on the side, I am an author and public speaker and I keep a super nerdy blog called Sci-Fi Interfaces. Great. Um, so one of the first things we talk about on the podcast, um, as you probably know, is um, what is your definition of AI? You know, when we're talking about AI, all these different technologies and things like that, uh, what is AI to you? Uh, it's a, it's, obviously, it's a, a contentious question. Um, I am super fond of uh, Stuart Armstrong's definition. He wrote a book, and I hope I get the title right because it's coming out of memories, uh, Smarter mm. Than Us, The Rise of Machine Intelligence. Um, and his definition focuses not on sort of what it is because that will always be sort of a moving goal, uh, but think about what can it do? What are its sort of effects, right? Yeah. Um, its capabilities are the things thing that we concern ourselves with. So um, I, I think of AI as, you know, ap approaching and then exceeding human capabilities um, is, is a very loose definition of what I've got. Yeah. So approaching human level uh, capabilities uh, uh, in the sense of actions and um, betraying sensitivity or, or you know, uh, what kinds of things are, you, are we talking about? You talk about um... uh, specifically achieving goals, right? Uh, in across a variety of contexts, because mm. we already have lots of little things that can achieve small goals in small contexts. Uh, my Roomba can vacuum my floor, um, but when we we're speaking about, um, oh hey, you know, maximize the number of paper clips that you make, AI, um, it can achieve that goal using. A number of different mechanisms and, you know, using uh, the stock market, uh, using yeah. whatever actuators or robot it's, it's got controls over. So really goal pursuit uh, with a broad strategic capability of how do I pursue that goal and then a strong number of actuators that it can take actions to achieve that goal. Groovy. So in your series, uh, in your blog, do you look into kind of um, how the the portrayal of AI has um, been portrayed, um, has played out in the media, in, in films and 
comics and that sort of thing. And I think you've got the Untold AI series. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that was um, uh, one of my sort of most popular and perhaps most nerdy to date. Um, but yeah, the uh, the I took a look at all of the shows in television and science fiction film that depicted general AI and super AI. Narrow AI is just too big of a category, so I bypassed that mm. um, to, and did a whole bunch of analyses on it. The the ultimate question I was going for was, uh, what do we what do we get? What does sci-fi get right? Yeah. About AI, what is it telling that is just you know uh, BS, and then what is it missing that uh, AI scientists think? or say are, is really important. Um, but to, to your original question, there was that uh, question of how has perception of AI changed hmm. uh, over time? Um, and if we take that sort of super long view, that was one of the things I looked at uh, in the analysis. And at the very beginning, the first depictions of AI are, are horrible. Um, it goes all the way back to Metropolis, which isn't the first science fiction film, but it is the first sort of serious non-vaudevillian mm -hmm science fiction mm. film and it has mm. uh not only maria in there who is a a robot that is a neuro replication of a human but also has a sort of sort of innate evil to her as she obeys the evil engineer rotwang uh to um foment insurrection in the upper city uh and and in the lower city as well so mm. uh fritz lang also like just was deeply suspicious of technology, made calls mm -hmm. out to Moloch over the course of that film, uh, and it was probably set the tone um, for sort of early depictions of AI. It was just all evil. Mm. Um, then on about the 1950s, uh, American sci-fi, as compared to the German sci-fi, uh, saw Robbie the Robot, and it was a super sweet depiction of AI and how helpful they're going to be, mm. and they're going to be our friends and, you know, mm. uh, help us accomplish space travel, mm. um, which rode with us probably until about the 70s, mm. uh, and then with the onset of, you know, HAL and Kubrick's vision um, of what a the problems of AI might be, yep. uh, we began to get sort of more nuanced about what the problems might be as opposed to all bad or all good. Um, and then I would say probably starting around the early 90s, uh, we left behind the sort of, oh, it's going to be problematic in a sort of nuanced sense to, well, it might be good or might be bad. The, the general tone has been on the rise since Fritz Lang. Um, but mm. we're still in the negatives and slowly rising. Mm. Are those um, films and, and things that you're covering mostly Western depictions of AI and uh, robotics and things like that? Um, have you looked at much in the um, kind of Eastern depiction, predominantly coming out from uh, Japan? Obviously, there's mm. a lot of uh, depictions of AI and, and robotics um, from the 80s onwards, really, um, in Japan. Is that something that you looked at as well or as a counterbalance? I would not say that I am ex as exhaustive with uh, Eastern films and television shows, mm. um, but I did include the ones that I'm certainly familiar with, like Ghost in the Shell, mm, sure. um, even though that's more about sort of cybernetics. Uh, those shows did sort of make it in. I did not do an analysis about, hey, let's look at the Eastern depictions versus Western depictions. Yep. So I'd be a little... I'm going to be cautious about trying mm. to make generalizations based on them. Um, but I will say that uh, one of the things that I did was take a look at just numerically 
according to the criteria that I had set up, what are the most accurate depictions of AI science or, or the problems in AI? Mm. And one show from Japan did make it in, and that was um, Psychopaths. It has a, a really mm. sort of long and rich uh, television history, but I was specifically looking at the movie, uh, and its movie wound up being like number four out of 10. Um, as to being like identifying and exploring a lot of those real world AI or science, AI science, real world issues. Yeah. And I think if because um, I, I think I've, I've seen the film um, only, I think. And if anyone's unfamiliar with it, I think it's the idea that like the whole place is run by an AI. Although it's, that's a massive yeah, spoiler. Sorry. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. Um, I should have put that at the top of the podcast, really. <laughs> if you haven't seen any of these films, <laughs> um, then please, I'm sorry, or just go and see them. <laughs> Most of them have been out for a long time. So yeah. Psychopaths um, is run by AI, but also um, more elusive than that. At the beginning, you don't necessarily know that this is the case. And they are the people who are kind of uh, policing mm -hmm. the state. Are um, they're putting their faith in the guns? Um, so this kind of machine to make decisions for them, and I think that's quite interesting. So that leads you into oh, they're giving decision their own autonomy away in this level, um, this very detrimental time when they're kind of choosing to to either kill or to let go, and that extrapolates out to the whole society as being basically run the same way. Yeah, and I think in the in the movie, it's it's sort of super interesting because the the Sybil system, which is the AI that you get the sense is certainly authoritarian in mm. Tokyo, uh, but is now being built up in a new city. Um, but it's a different instantiation of the Sybil system, and there are problems, uh, and those are really fascinating and really interesting problems. And I think it is that that setup uh, that is sort of a real world issue and a real world problem um, because it's biased and I'm mm, going to try and yeah. avoid spoilers uh, yeah. in this case. Um, it's a, it's biased towards a particular set of people and those people exploit that bias. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good one and yeah. good, good issues to talk about um, because uh, lots of AI shows, especially of late, um, sort of presume, hey, if we've got a super intelligence, humans are just going to start trusting it over time mm -hmm. as it you know, correctly predicts things. But is that trust always earned as it gets sort of further and further out or broader and broader in its recommendations? Um, so, yeah, I'm super, super pleased to see Psychopaths sort of illustrate that large so that people have this uh, shared thing to talk about when we talk about bias in AI and mm. trusting a super AI and even the cultural integration of an AI. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the obvious question here is, what was number one? <laughs> uh, I was actually pleased about number one uh, because it is one of my all-time favorites of the last 10 years. Um, though I, all, you have to trust me, or I mm. guess you can look at the numbers since I keep the Google the Google spreadsheet online where I did this. I didn't try and make this number one, um, but I was quite <laughs> pleased at the end when it came out. Uh, and that is the television show Person of Interest. Uh, it's, a, it's a show ostensibly at the very beginning of its arc, uh, which is about a programmer who has a backdoor 
to a super AI that is being used to monitor American citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, and while the government is using a, the, the main version to watch out for acts of terrorism, uh, our small plucky band of heroes is using it to help individuals who may be uh, about to come to ill fortune. Now, the, the course of the show uh, does not stay inside of those boxes, but where it goes is all very well-founded. Um, lots of the show, uh, like um, Finch, who is sort of our protagonist hacker or programmer, mm -hmm. uh, keeps the his initial AI or his initial backdoor to the AI just as a simple oracle um, because he is well aware of the risks of super AI and doesn't want that, that AI, um, which he calls the machine, sort of influencing him unduly. Mm. So he constrains its communications. Like just that intro, and that's the initial conceit in season one, really says that the writers did their work where it's largely discussed in the science community that keeping AIs as boxed as we can by only mm -hmm. allowing them to answer questions or only supply, you know, uh, tweet responses, tweet sized responses is going to be the right way to prevent its influence over humans. Now there's a fine philosophical argument that says, yeah, over the long term, even that would fail, but um, it still shows that they, when they started with that conceit, that they were reading the same things I was certainly reading uh, about the science. So yeah. super, super pleased. And I, I love to talk about that show uh, and love to recommend it to people. Great. I, I have to check that one out. I haven't seen that. Is that on Netflix? Uh, I actually don't know. Um, no. I can do a quick check. I think mm. so, because that's where I watched it. Yeah. Um, but of course, they're catalog changes from time to time. Yes, and country to country, mm. annoyingly for us uh, Brits. Um, oh, yeah. And so it is on the American catalog, um, but you'll have to check it out to see if it is on the British catalog. Great. I'll check that one out. So, I mean, there's there's lots and lots we can talk about um, <laughs> <laughs> with your your work um, and your knowledge. Is there um, um, some things which are really close to what the truth is currently? I mean, there's there's things like um, uh uh, there's things like um, Mr. Robot and things like that, which are uh, very close portrayals of what could be hackers are doing. Uh, there's obviously no AI or not really much talk about AI stuff in there. Is there sort of programs which you're, you know, like um, the one we just talked about, which are really interesting and bring to bear really uh, current issues um, other than um, the person of interest and... Psychopaths? Psychopaths, yeah. Uh, so, y yes. <laughs> um, and actually, that's, really, that's, a, that's a really interesting question because I approached the Untold AI series, uh, you know, like, oh, let's, let's just look at the numbers. Mm. Um, but in fact, there are moments that, you know, are fantastic and, and, and may not be backed, not, not backed up, but the, the numbers may not pull the spotlight towards those moments. Um, there is an episode of Rick and Morty uh, called The Ricks Must Be Crazy. Uh, and the the A storyline uh, has uh, Rick uh, and Morty going into smaller uh, layers of sub-dimensions mm. uh, mm. chasing a MacGuffin. Uh, but there's a B storyline where they don't want Summer to come with them, Morty's sister. So he leaves 
summer in the car in the spaceship car yeah uh, but the yeah. car has an ai that we've never heard from and we've never heard from since or we've never heard of before and we haven't heard from since uh but rick simply tells the car okay keep summer safe uh, and then they disappear well the spaceship ends up interpreting this instruction uh, in darker and darker ways to mm. things that end up not even being genuine threats, uh, but it's it perceives them as threats uh, and then uh, takes horrible actions in order to attain that goal. Mm. And in the AI science, it's called that's called a perverse instantiation. Oftentimes, uh, the example will be, oh, hey, make people happy. And one way that a super AI with you know lots of capabilities could do that is just stimulate the pleasure centers of everyone's brains. Yeah. Uh, and sure, the, the world may be falling apart and our long-term futures may be collapsing underneath us, nothing stopping the Anthropocene. But hey, we're all happy because mm. these pleasure centers are being uh, stimulated. That's an example of perverse instantiation. Yeah. And we don't see it writ large a lot of um uh, in sci-fi very often a lot of writers when they get the opportunity to write for an ai they think of it in one of two ways right they think of it as just another person and that's perfect for general ai or if we are you know neuro replicating in order to get to the ai that's a likely scenario but when we begin to get to ai that's not neuro replicated or, or even super ai it becomes a different beast um, and some writers just think of it as a really really smart human mm. who can outthink you like somebody who's really really smart at chess yeah. um, but it takes a really smart writer to understand that no the the mind of an ai will be alien and it will do things like perverse instantiations so mm. that was one of my favorite moments because in the show of course the they're writing the humor for its darkness uh and how summer is trying to not have this thing explode out from under mm. her um, and and more horrible things happen in her name, um, and even even her attempts to control it are kind of laughable, um, because the the computer accepts her instructions, but then still continues on with its perverse instantiation. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, it showed that the Rick and Morty writers were uh, fully aware of this trend and exploiting it for its dark comedy, uh, and I just love it. I've, I've watched it an, an embarrassing number of times. I think um, uh, that's a really great example. Um, for, I think Logan's Run is a little bit like that as well, that's where they're set up um, to do with the manipulating society. So you're always, everyone's always happy, but then there's the trade-off where you have to be killed when you're 30. I can't really remember why that's that's the case, but yeah, so you get um, these different kind of um, perversions of how a intelligence might be different from us and how that might play out. Um, is there any um, examples of any of this which turn out well? <laughs> it's really, um, there's a, uh, as you, as you uh, set up at the beginning, there's a lot of um, trend towards, and maybe it's, it's because of the drama that is incorporated in, in telling an interesting story which disintegrates around you introducing these technologies. But is there an example of, of this technology being played out in a positive nature? That that is a that is a challenge, and you and you're right. I think the challenge is somewhat innate to the narrative format, mm. um, because if it's all good, there's no story to tell, right? Yeah. Um, there are a few, of course, early examples. I, I mentioned Robbie the robot early in the show, um, and Robbie is a friend, or he's a faithful servant mm -hmm. in Forbidden Planet. Yeah, um, he ends up 
helping save the day in a Robbie vehicle that was made just after Forbidden Planet called the Invisible Boy. Um, and there are other examples like that. C-3PO and R2-D2 uh, are sort of helpful AIs. Um, when those appear, they're often simply not the focus of the plot. Yeah. Um, there are a few examples where we see civilizations that are um, benefiting from having super AI in their midst, um, but they're not all like spectacular. And of course, they're all sort of in the background because they're not the focus of the narrative. Um, Buck Rogers in the 21st, 25th century, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, there are super intelligences that they play sort of this role of wise elder uh, who help judge, adjudicate cases, advise humans, say what's going on. If you take a look at literature, there are often better examples. Um, but of course, my expertise in the blog uh, have all been, and, and the book that I wrote uh, from it with Nathan Shedroff are all about movie interfaces and television interfaces. Um, so I don't have many of those on hand. Mm -hmm. I just finished reading Ian Banks' Consider Flibus, which is uh, a book that involves um, an intergalactic war, and one side is called the culture, uh, which is a bunch of humans that have integrated uh, general intelligence and even superintelligence into their society. And they're the, this giant centaur force who's actually, because of, on the advice of the super AI, have engaged in warfare, but it has like ultimate good ends. Anyway. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there, are, there are a few... Uh, I think there are two others that are probably worth mentioning that are good, or three. Um, so it's yeah. comedy, <laughs> uh, but it is, it is brilliant British sci-fi, uh, and that is a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Sure, Deep Thought is a giant super AI, and again, Douglas Adams plays it for the comedy, um, but... Uh, and, and it even has an example of perverse instantiation, right? The mm. whole joke is, hey, what's the answer? The humans or the sentient beings of that galaxy ask it a very ill-formed question. Um, and it replies with an answer. <laughs> so it's super intelligent enough to find an answer to that question, but not super intelligent enough to reverse engineer the intent of the question. Mm -hmm. um, which, again, is played for the comedy. But um, if I remember right, the... Uh, the civilization that was around deep thought actually prospered over the 10,000 years that it was processing. Um, and I think the implication there is that it was like, Hey, while I'm working on this other problem, I'm going to help you guys out. Um, so since uh, that has been put to screen a number of times, I would count that uh, as a positive. Uh, mm. There is, an, there is an unfortunate translation of the iRobot story. Uh, when it went from sort of the Asimov sh collection of short stories into the Will Smith vehicle, um, yeah. they they made the super AIs not only gave it a real face, uh, but then made it evil. And that was something Will Smith was able to save the day and yeah. restore humanity, humanity as its sort of rightful controllers of its destiny. Uh, but in the books, there's a and I always was super sad um, that this didn't make it into the film, but there was the implication that after humans had sort of ironed out these these wrinkles and all of the short stories that Asimov wrote were about the wrinkles and the ironing out, um, that things just started to work. And people thought, oh, I'm glad we solved that. And apparently we're doing better. But it was the super AI sort of 
passing into the background while it was just making everything work and not letting itself be the center of attention. That never really made it to screen. Um, and other than that, I don't, I can't think of other examples of, uh, with the exception of the machine in person of interest mm. of really good super AIs. Yeah. So not not many is the short answer to your question. No, no. Um, I, I've got one to add to that. It's probably not a super intelligence though, but it's one of those. Uh, it takes you off guard. Um, there's a film called Moon. Um, oh yeah, Gertie. And it's and it's so good. Um, so you should check that out. But the oh no, I, I do. I love the film. I think I think that was um, that was in the top ten. Oh really? Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, and and one of the things that uh, they play on in Moon, I I felt, is that you have this um, robot character, and you're waiting constantly for the robot character to be um, aggressive and, and take over and and be the <laughs> antagonist, and it never does. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's that's really interesting because it's basically playing on your um, your ideologies that. You know, we've had Terminator and all these things. So you're, you're waiting for that to happen, and it never does. Um, oh, and it's a very similar setup to 2001: Space Odyssey. You're in space, and it's lonely, and there's this computer. So I think there's the, the parallels there that it plays on as well. Yes, yeah, it's a great one. That's a good one. Great. Um, so, what uh, do we think about the robots taking over and uh, taking our jobs, etc.? <laughs> <laughs> um. It's an interesting question, and I don't, I can't think of a, of a single piece of screen sci-fi. And again, mm. I'm limited. I deliberately limit myself to those media, um, where it's addressed really well. Mm. Um, even in Metropolis, that first piece of sci-fi that also dealt with AI, um, Maria was sort of a one-off robot. Uh, you get the sense that Rotwang had her in the waiting in the wings, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not like they've decided to use that uh, for the workforce. There's still uh, humans who are being exploited in the lower city mm -hmm. um, for their for their labor, which is really strange. Um, the The term robot, and this this gets around AI circles and sci-fi circles every now and then, uh, but was invented actually because it's a uh, from the play i think of the 1920s mm -hmm. yeah uh, hold on rossum's universal robots yeah and uh in that play the robots are generally created to be a workforce uh, but they have ascensions and they fight uh, for their freedom and their independence there's a terrible movie from i think the 1950s um, called the creation of the humanoids uh, which kind of follows on Rossum's Universal Robots, uh, but it was just clearly a play that was put onto film um, mm. and dives more into the possibility of like, uh, or the the disgust that uh, a branch of humans have uh, for the other humans who have adopted uh, the humanoids wholeheartedly right down to this one woman who has a sex partner who is a robot and mm. not just a romantic partner, but uh you get the sense that it's going to become a long-term relationship. Yeah. Um, and that one again plays off this notion of uh, we are subjugating sentiences and therefore they revolt um, because the, the, the risk associated with replacement by robots uh, does not depend on general AI, right? Yeah. We're, that's happening already now with narrow AI. 
um, and I don't see great depictions of it. Nobody has really wrestled with that problem. Um, either they are happy subservients who have particular jobs. C-3PO is a protocol droid. R2-D2 is a uh, navigation astromech droid. Uh, BB-8 is also an astromech droid in the Star Wars universe. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't get the sense that, oh, there's somebody who's lost their job or that society has had a problem with th that job being lost. Uh, the Will Smith vehicle iRobot also shows sort of like a FedEx carrier, but it's never really investigated throughout the rest of the, I'm going to use a fancy word here, diegesis, the world of the story, as to how society has coped with that. Um, are they working off a universal basic income? Mm. Uh, do they have job mortgages? Mm. <laughs> right? What have they done with the people who used to carry FedEx boxes to Will Smith's house? Just doesn't answer it. Um, and it is one of the key concerns that we have and should have culturally and societally around uh, AI and robotics. Um, but I, I don't have a great example. Mm. Weirdly. No, it's, it's interesting that, that that topic hasn't really played out wholly in, in our screen culture. Um, I, it almost brings me um, back to the Animatrix because that, that took the idea of uh, the film The Matrix and they gave that idea uh, to a lot of different filmmakers and went, you know, get me to this point from now. And I think that was really interesting that they, they produced this um, little histories um, and short, short film histories of the robots uh, being created and uprising and sentience happening and, and then turning to this um, apocalyptic uh, situation of the Matrix. And we almost need a, a reimagining of that now just to see how we can you know, talk about that, how we can um, use language to um, push this conversation forward, because obviously it's, it's a writ large in the, in the media at the moment about how we can uh, best deal with these technologies um, to do with workforce and, you know, universal basic income and, and such. So I think it's um, any budding writers out there, I think it's the time <laughs> is now. <laughs> and actually, I think you even have the opportunity to rewrite Rossum's Universal Robots or Creation of the Humanoids, both stories about robot rebellions, um, and rethink that in terms of, no, it would be the humans who rebel, um, using the same characters and sort of the same digesis that are mm. set up there and turning it on its head, uh, which I think would be a great illusion and a great evolution of those issues yeah. and sci-fi. So. Yes, please do. <laughs> right, Chris, I've, I've got to go and uh, write a play, but I'll be back um, in about a week. Is, is that how, hold. how a week? Is that how long it takes? I don't know. Um, so um, we'd be remiss to not mention there's a couple of other things which I've written down here. There's uh, Westworld, which has obviously got its reboot recently. Um, yep. Oh, yeah, uh, and follows right in the footsteps of Rossum's Universal Robots, right? Yes. It's, a, it's a workforce yeah. that are abused uh, and they revolt. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, did you get on with that? Um, the re the remake of that. It ends quite um, in a kind of ludicrous um, rampage at the end of the original nineteen fifties version. Um, oh yeah, yeah. With uh, wasn't it Yul Brenner? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> who played the gunslinger uh, chasing around? Uh, yeah, I, I I recall that one sort of fondly from my youth, um, uh, but uh, the the modern one is uh, I think much smarter but still takes a couple of leaps in its conception of ai that um aren't narratively 
expeditious, uh, yet scientifically questionable. Right. Yeah. And I, I think they try and um, thread the technologies together with this idea of memory um, as a computer concept, but also a concept which resonates with human, with our anatomy and how we work and talk about ourselves and and our emotions and that for me feeds really heavily into how these um, machines could be seen as um, somewhat sentient because they have these memories and obviously because they are abused um, they're mostly bad memories yeah and I mean it I think one of the the great things that the Westworld reboot has raised I mean Crichton's original was (laughs) honestly a, a Jurassic Park predecessor right he had a clever Mm -hmm. idea about how to use technology in combination with capitalism uh, to create this sort of consumerist place and what it might expose about humans uh and and their and their natures their darker nature but the the reboot goes really deeply into that what do you do or what would happen if humans had a playground where they're not held morally accountable for the the behaviors that they have towards things that look and behave and respond exactly like other humans. Um, but, but with the promise that it doesn't matter what you do. Well, th- that's a fine philosophical question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have found that, so we have uh, an Amazon Echo in our kitchen, um, w- which we thought we would use for home automation, but we ended up just using it as a kitchen timer. Um, but my our little five-year-old boy has learned that he can ask it to play songs well the echo doesn't always understand his voice and he's not always the clearest speaker so no Mm. surprise um but i have heard him getting meaner and ruder to Mm. the amazon echo than i ever hear him getting to another human and certainly amongst myself i find myself i could get quickly exasperated that it doesn't match oh she's actually now talking in the background because she hears (laughs) me talking about her um but I get more quickly, I allow myself to get more exasperated with yeah. the, the machine than I do with the people. And uh, that personal anecdote really points us back to Westworld. It's, there's, a, there's an ugly grain of truth there that we're going to have to face. Um, I consider myself sort of a bright green futurist that I think if we design it well and we roll things out well and we structure society well, that these technologies can make things better. Um, but of course, science fiction has to investigate a lot of the other space, uh, which is, well, what can go wrong? What would it mean to not implement it well? Yeah. Um, what, what even does it mean psychologically? What doors does it open that we have had closed for a while? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, uh, science fiction writers have a, a big impact, really, um, and obviously um, other cultural artifacts like plays and um, books and things like that um, they allow us to uh, imagine what maybe we hadn't imagined before we hadn't been thinking about before necessarily broadening our kind of position and and updating maybe our language or um, how that we the knowledge of how the technology currently works like all these things are um, really important actually and I think science fiction writers are in my mind extremely um, important at how we as a society talk about these things and I think that's really interesting um, so I think um, w- if that's the case I don't know if you agree with me on that one um, oh I, I, I not only 100% agree with you <laughs> uh, I mean we, we have to make a distinction in 
in the types of stories that are told, hmm. uh, right? When you look at science fiction as a genre, there's even a discussion to be had about what counts as science fiction. What do we mean? Uh, what what yeah. what bounds the genre? Um, but even within a commonly accepted framework of sci-fi, there are things like space opera, like Star Trek. Uh, sorry, Star Wars, um, that only use the trappings of science in order to tell old mythical tales mm. um, for harder science fiction like Kubrick was doing with 2001 A Space Odyssey, right? I think the harder the science fiction, and there's a there's a great post on TV tropes called Moe's Hardness Scale of Science Fiction. Mm. Uh, and they break it down between like, uh, I think uh, zero is like only using today's technology in novel ways uh, all the way up to, you know, writers breaking the laws of physics at at whim um but i think that the the lower down on that scale the harder authors write their science fiction the more they find themselves in that speculative place what are the what are the cultural effects um and as soon as you recognize that that's kind of what they're doing science fiction becomes really powerful they are um they're threat casting to, mm. to use the term that I've learned in the last year, which is to say, hey, if we're not careful, this is where we're headed. Mm. Um, and two other sub thoughts, and I know I'm, I'm interrupting you in the middle of a thought, uh, but uh, that's, I'm, I'm a talker. Uh, the first is that I, in, in sort of service of that, I recently, just today, launched uh, an examination of fascism in sci-fi um, because I have, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about it um, in terms of modern politics mm -hmm. um, and realize that we aren't really investigating fascism. Uh, we didn't in the during World War II um, in, uh, using a science fiction lens. Um, we did using an alternate history lens like Sinclair Lewis did. Um, but um, but in science fiction, we didn't. And today we get kind of close to it, uh, but we don't face it head on. So I'm hoping <laughs> to encourage some writers to start thinking about it very directly by talking about, okay, well, here is this cultural thing. Let's use this. And, and here's a, here's a definition of it. Let's start using science fiction as that speculative tool to begin to examine where, you know, if, if history isn't enough of an indication, well, let's use sci-fi to examine where this could go mm -hmm. given modern technologies and uh, the things that they didn't have during World War II. Yeah, and and you can almost make differing types of space opera in these different types of societies played out in these ways, I guess. Yep. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yes, no, no, I agree no. wholeheartedly with you. Yeah. Um. Great. Um. I I I was just going to say uh, really briefly that um. Uh, I think it's really useful to demonstrate these different um, and interesting um paradigms and you know where the technology is going to take us uh, but i think like we were saying there's very few examples of you know positive uh ways of looking at this stuff and i think um for me personally i would love uh, a few more people who are writing maybe finding their drama from um you know how the relationships work in and and different things necessarily but uh better ai ai like technology that is useful and helps us and um we can strive in that direction, maybe. Um, I think there's one example which we haven't talked about yet, which is Her. Have you seen Her? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so if, you, if for anyone who's listening hasn't um, seen Her, it's uh, a Joaquin, it's Joaquin Phoenix, I think, is playing the main character. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. He is a somewhat lonely 
person who in the future a lot of people have weird jobs because I think this is one of those films which actually does go some way to look at what kinds of jobs that humans can do and his job is writing uh, love letters um it's yeah, getting like paid note to Bergerac. yeah um without the nose um writing <laughs> these 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 love letters and um he in his sort of loneliness but it turns out that other people are, are getting it as well um picks up this new operating system operating system for his computer and his phone and it start and it's something that um is very intelligent and can talk to you and is is basically marketed as your friend and your pal and the whole film plays out that he starts having feelings with the the ai essentially um and i thought it was a beautiful depiction of something which is not catastrophic it's a very sad film but it's uh it doesn't take us to a dark place necessarily yeah it's a it's a great film and i spent um uh, like shortly after the film was released, uh, I think I had been doing the blog for about five years and I got a lot of people saying, talk, talk about that, talk about that, mm. talk about that. Um, and spent a lot of time investigating the, the product. And uh, so it's a Spike Jones film. Um, and it is, it is really smart about a number of things, but kind of dumb about others. Um, I do think that uh, it's the deliberate disembodiment of Samantha, who is, uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays the character named Theodore. Uh, the OS asks, or no, she picks her name. Uh, so I'll call her Samantha. That's what mm-hmm. she picks in the film. Uh, Spike Jones chose a, a neutral outcome for the introduction of general AI as it evolves to super AI, right? Because there are lots of depictions of how super AI, go, uh, AI going wrong it's going to be the death of us all. Mm-hmm. And there are a few depictions of super AI just making things right finally. Um, and he picked this one place in the middle. And I'm, I th- I'm still trying to sort of suss out why he would do that. Um, other, than, other than to investigate the space of what does it mean for humans to, to be in the presence of something so utterly human-like and tailored to yourselves mm. that you will that you stand the possibility of falling in love. How how will that work out? That's the simple question. Um, there's a there's a great moment in the very beginning of the film, which I think a lot of people don't don't remember, because um, you know his experience with Samantha is really burned into their brains. Mm. Uh, but where very early in the film, to sort of illustrate his loneliness, he's trying to have phone sex, and the the woman on the other end of the phone. Um, it is sort of going along with the phone sex, but then she introduces this notion out of the blue. Uh, she asks him, okay, now grab the dead cat, choke me with the dead cat. And it's played a little bit for the comedy, but you know, the mm. camera's only on Joaquin's face uh, and how Theodore is like, this, this, is not, this is not my kink. And wow, this is a really big turnoff. But I think the point of the scene is Jones showing us that you know, uh, trying to find a mate amongst humans is kind of a crapshoot. Um, and other people's kinks are going to be different than yours, or you may mm-hmm. not have them. But then introduced to Samantha, who over the course of three questions during her setup, suddenly becomes the perfect mate for Theodore. Um, and that's, that's dark, right? Because mm-hmm. if humans begin to prefer 
AI, general AI, because yeah. it fits us perfectly. And we can't hope to replicate that with humans. What's the future of our species? Not just emotionally, like Theodore has to deal with, um, but even genetically, mm. right? How are we going to reproduce ourselves? Because yeah. that's been the hack that the selfish gene has sort of done. Like, okay, if, if this organism likes sex, <laughs> then I can reproduce. Um, but if we prefer to have relationships with machines that that suddenly comes into question. And Jones did not investigate that. He investigated strictly from the the consequence of a human falling for a robot in mm. interpersonal terms, only from sort of Theodore and the other cast members' perspectives, not from that evolutionary perspective. Or society um, and how that would play out you know going forward i guess in society yeah exactly like yeah literally what happens to mm. life events when people are walking around with their loved ones in their ear and disinterested in other humans yeah wow um okay well that's that's a big question right there uh, <laughs> oh and and I, I may have cut out during it but uh the other example that I was going to mention that references this is from Futurama, the animated series. Mm. Um, Fry, who's been asleep for a thousand years, starts to kind of get the hots for a robot. And the other characters in the show say, oh, my God, you've never seen the public service announcement videos. So they play him one. That's a very hilarious uh, done in like the 1950s style of don't date robots. And it actually talks about this, that if, if you fall in love with this thing that is a perfect mate, well, all sorts of things that used to sort of depend on those, the, the cultural efforts that we had to uh, impress our mates fall by the wayside. Uh, so it's, again, sort of comedy taking the reins there farther than more serious sci-fi does. But it's, uh, it's, in the same, it's in the same vein. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting that you, it, there's quite a lot of um, examples of comedy science fiction writing, which is, is able to go there, um, like a lot of comedy is. It's able to take those, it's almost harder um, viewpoints and then turn them on their head to make it yeah, amusing. Um, so I guess it's just interesting that, um, you know, people shouldn't disregard um, this sort of medium and uh, necessarily when you were talking about this sort of uh, subject to have a different viewpoint. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> I, I don't even have the vocabulary around this yet. I have so far resisted including comedy science fiction in sort of what I consider my for formal survey of sci-fi. Mm. Um, but there is a difference between comedy that sort of breaks the fourth wall versus comedy that pulls all of its jokes from the earnestness of the characters. Um, and it never really breaks the fourth wall, like uh, Spaceballs, mm. right? There are gags in there that you, if you were trying to analyze it, you would have to kind of guess, well, wait a minute, it, is this the way it is because it's funny to us? Or is it funny to the characters on screen? Or And teasing that apart gets very difficult. But in things like Futurama or Rick and Morty, all the comedy is not... Well, that's not true. Rick and Morty does break the fourth wall. Um, but Futurama doesn't often break the fourth wall. Yeah. Um, all comedy comes from the earnestness of its characters and the situations. Um, and if I could find good, clear language, I would probably begin to investigate comedy more formally. Uh, it's just that uh, I don't have the analytical tools to really divide those things yet. Um, but still, I don't, I don't dismiss comedy. It's just harder to analyze. 
Yeah, awesome. Uh, I think that's a nice distinction as well um, about the different types of um, comedy writing and, and how those things play out. I have um, one more thing that I'd like to talk to you about, um, which is Robot and Frank, which is a film. Um, Ooh, good one. And it's a film which I brought, I bring up because it's it's uh, it must be playing out in your uh, numbers somewhere in your list. Yes, it is. Um, where whereabouts is it? Do you know? Um, I can't remember. It didn't make the top ten. Okay. Um, and I did I did see the film, and I did see the film as a course of writing that series, uh, but it was in, in the midst of a bunch of others. And all I can remember is the basic outline of the plot. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, Frank is given a robot to sort of help him instead of going to a home. He gets this robot as a as an assistance for his declining capabilities uh, in his old age, but he begins to use it in some nefarious ways. Mm. Um, but on the and on, on the one hand, you're like, well, hey, hang on, uh, robots shouldn't help him commit crimes. But on the other hand, um, Frank is suddenly energized and he's like his old self again um, because he has these problems. And that's where he got his energy and his uh, his drive from as a younger man. Um, so I, I do remember that part about the film. Was there a particular aspect that you were thinking of? No, I think um, I think it's just a lovely illustration of um, something which is closer to us now and the te- types of technology we are kind of inventing in the current situation. Um, I think obviously the robot in, in um, robot and Frankie is slightly more capable, but um, yeah. I mean that is an example of how a lot of people are thinking yeah. about. The subject, I think, around elderly care and what is um, the cap- capabilities of these robots and what's permissible for them to do and engage with. And I think that film um, is a little, a lovely little kind of um, vignette on on that sort of idea. And, and there should be more of those sorts of vignettes, maybe, to get to grips with some of the things that might crop up. Yeah, I, th- I think so. The um, the notion of a domestic or a health servant. Uh, has shown up a number of times. Uh, Big Hero 6 is an animated film that mm-hmm. talks about uh, a health care robot. Um, and then there was another one that struck me while we were talking. Oh, even in, and I can't believe I'm talking about this film because I dislike it so much, uh, but uh, as often as I am, but in iRobot, mm. uh, sort of the way that the evil robots infiltrate into our society uh, is as domestic helpers. Um and I think uh, there are shades of that in uh, Robot and Frank as well. Um, but I do like that movie because it's investigating both sides from a nuanced perspective, right? Mm-hmm. It's there to help Frank, but Frank uses it in ways that actually do help him, but not in the way that society would necessarily want writ yep. large. <laughs> so I, I also, that's another one of those moments that, didn't play out in the numbers, but is a super nice one that hmm. uh, now you've got me thinking I should write a post about those, those favorite moments that sort of escaped, uh, uh your, your blog. So far. The rug. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> I think the, unfortunately, I think there's one of the, the, one of those subjects that we could talk about all evening. Um, yeah, and in quite close to our hearts. Um, 
if you are interested in in um, watching iRobot, uh, do not watch it. Um, <laughs> please read the book. The, the book is a very good um, book, and it's um, short stories almost. Um, so go check that out. Asimov, um, fabulous, um, amazing writer. Go watch um, Robot and Frank. It's a great little movie. And um, we're going to get on to the last kind of um, bit here now, Chris. So we usually ask people at the end, what sort of thing um, with this technology is kind of scary to you currently? And what things are really exciting you about the AI and, and robotics in the future? So uh, great, great closing question. And I actually have three answers for your two questions. Um, what <laughs> I find really scary is th- that there is a there is a, a capitalist advantage to be gained by pushing the capabilities of AI. Humans have never been very good, and capitalism has never been very good, at prioritizing safety over profit. And the speed at which an intelligence explosion can happen is unlike anything that we've had before alongside humans. So even though we've managed to deal with, say, the cultural effects of industrialization uh, or deal with the cultural effects of electricity in our Mm -hmm. lives, um, AI kind of feels like, oh, it's kind of a familiar thing. Um, But again, it's an alien mind that can achieve goals. And if we suddenly find ourselves in the spot where there is a general AI that's escaped to become a super AI, um, you know, without our noticing, which hopefully that won't happen, but, mm-hmm. um, or it's out of our control. Well, that's, that could be the great filter, <laughs> uh, that we talk about when we talk about, uh, the Fermi paradox, right? Uh, I, I, I hate to sound like an alarmist, but it could mm-hmm. be the end of humanity. Um, if we make a paperclip maximizer that decides that we're, you know, we're mm-hmm. expendable in the interest of pursuing its paperclip making yeah. goals. So, um, so Go ahead. Sorry. So um, anyone making these um, algorithms, just don't give it any uh, goals to maximize in the real world. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, just do that and we'll be cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nick Bostrom wrote a lot about instrumental convergence, um, which says that any general AI might reasonably achieve other capabilities in pursuit of its goals. Um and and wind up becoming a bad super AI, not by accident, but uh, just because that's how it's going to do the thing that it thinks it was programmed to do. Mm-hmm. So, but so so I share those those far concerns. I also, of course, have the near world concerns, uh, which is that we are going to be displacing a lot of workforce. Um, we are uh, providing precision and uh, introducing efficiencies to things that maybe super dark. I, um, I wrote my pers- my first piece of uh, short fiction uh, on this subject fairly recently because doing all this stuff had made me starting to think about it. Uh, but it was about the combination of AI and America's dark obsession with guns um, and the dark places that that might lead us. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I have a, both near-term fears, um, even midterm fears about the psychology of humans. <laughs> what do we do when we find out that we're not the best or greatest or the center of the even our own planet, um, but that the AI we have created are, and of course those long-term existential fears. So plenty of fears to go around to answer the first part of the question. 
Well, the second part is certainly uh, your second question, which is to say, hey, uh, I do think that there's a lot of opportunity here to do the right thing, right? Narrow AI is an is not a danger in the same way that general AI is. In fact, as narrow AI gets more powerful, it mostly gets safer, mostly. Hmm. Um, and so I certainly working at IBM or um, when I, I wrote a, a book about narrow AI last year, um, I am I am a believer that if things are narrow AI is designed well, it can make lives easier. It can reduce drudgery um, as long as we manage the social effects, like with universal basic income of job displacement. Mm -hmm. um, that on the whole, we can, uh, and if we counter some of the uh, you know the, the horrible forces of ultra capitalism to make sure that the benefits of AI are spread more evenly uh, throughout the, the the world citizenry, that we can make the world a better place. Um, and I'm a bright green person. I, I believe that A, those changes are coming and that B, because of that, it's our responsibility to make them as positive as possible, you know, both as designers and as citizens doing our voting. Um, to make sure that they're you know well constrained, like the GDPR over there mm -hmm. uh, in Europe and its positive effects. I think it was a great, great move, and I really hope that I think California is going to be replicating it soon. And hopefully, oh, awesome. yeah, if the U.S. can get out of its current political quagmire, it too will follow that lead. But I think that it can be done well, and that there are lots of benefits to be gained from it if we can just corral the dark forces that want to control it in other directions. Yeah. Um, but I did say that there were three parts, uh, and there is uh, this is both a uh, an example um, and one uh, that was in the top ten of the Untold AI series. But it both illustrates a hope and a fear. Um, and uh, that movie is called uh, Colossus: The Forbidden Project, uh, which is a movie that was actually based on a novel called Colossus, and the the plots are quite similar between the two. Mm -hmm. um, but in Colossus the Forbin Project, uh, a professor by the name of Forbin turns on a machine um, that's there to help with defense called Colossus. Um, and it borrows one of the fairly common tropes out of sci-fi of this genre, which is to say that it it gains sentience quickly, even though, and that somehow surprises the scientists. Like, come on, guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've been working on this for decades. You didn't think that was going to happen. Um, so, but bypassing that, the silliness of that trope, <clears throat> Colossus has an intelligence explosion, even finds another artificial intelligence on the planet. They kind of merge. Um, and, you know, giant spoilers again. Um, but it, the, the movie is really interesting. It was produced in 1970. Um, and it, it depicts a very dictatorial or um, almost totalitarian control as it pursues its goal of world peace. But the, the human's, resist it because of its totalitarianism, not because mm. of its goal. Um, and uh, the, the don't get me wrong, the AI does end up killing some programmers who are part of an effort to unplug the machine. Mm -hmm. um, but at the very end, uh, it has clearly gained control of the planet. And even though the humans are living in fear, and that's where it ends, and it, and it ends with Forbin saying, never, uh, you know, we will never stop fighting you. Um, if you just take the totalitarianism away, um, if it was successful, we wouldn't have war anymore. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's almost um, a kind of if you're talking about philosophy, it's almost you know is it the means or the goal? You know, is it some sort of 
Kantian utilitarian yeah. situation. You know, what what is it that we care about here? Is it that we care about um, our own um, autonomy and autonomy to make choices, or is it we want to live in a world where? Uh, you know it's peaceful and and we don't necessarily have that freedom but you know it's a better place to be and it's an interesting um example yeah and it and it, and it points at other sort of dark similar tales right like I, I i casually referenced the anthropocene this notion that um humans have contributed to a global climate ch- change that is unsustainable that we cannot survive um and I don't see a way that humans doing their best are going to easily come out of that. That's another problem that Colossus could have been given. And if we had a Colossus and instead of world peace, we were like, hey, let's get us to world sustainability. Mm -hmm. It would have to force us to make changes in who we are and what we think of ourselves and our way of life. But do do we want to valorize the child who is told by an adult, hey, don't touch that burning stovetop, mm. yeah. right? Who just looks and, and says, no, you can't tell me what to do and slams their hand down on the stovetop. Do we want to valorize that behavior? Um, or do we want to say, hey, they're, one of the things that AI may, may force us to do is to reckon with what we must do and we know we must do, but we find it very, very difficult to do for tragedy, the commons reasons, or mm-hmm. because we're, uh, you know, we we operate under the control of the diktats of the selfish gene, um, or just because uh, it's unpleasant to do so. Um, maybe AI is the thing that will get us to grow up. Yes, um, that, is, that is the third thing. So right, that's that's in between. Like, what am I scared of? I'm certainly scared yeah. of totalitarian AI, but I'm also hopeful. Wow, maybe this will be the thing uh, that encourages to, to 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 go through sort of an uh, a species adolescence. Yes, some sort of new epoch. Um, yep. Well, Chris, um, thank you for your time. Um, if people want to follow you, um, message you, how do they do that? Um, so I keep the blog up at sci-fi interfaces.com. There is a Facebook page. It's largely quiet. Um, but the Twitter feed is a little more active sci-fi interfaces, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you can contact me at Chris at sci-fi interfaces.com with, uh, emails. Wicked. Well, thank you very much again for your time and, um, your expertise. Um, so I wish you all the best, uh, at IBM and hopefully speak to you soon. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>